0: Today, I'm honored to introduce our our guest speaker and my dear friend, Dominic Barton. Dominic is currently the managing director of McKinsey & Company. That means the CEO and chairman uh, worldwide. We served on the board of McKinsey together. And actually, in many uh, crazy places all over the world, I was thinking back on all the places we did either client service or firm service, and we found ourselves together in places like Moscow, the United Arab Emirates, Japan, Korea, uh, Belgium, Silicon Valley, basically all over the world. And Dominic is a person who actually has changed my life. Uh, and I want to publicly acknowledge that he's done that. He did. He's done many things for me, including mentoring me. But he also did two things that uh, he didn't need to do, but made a difference to me. One was that he appointed me to the role of leading McKinsey's uh, leadership development and learning and what I called McKinsey University. And that was a role that actually touched me so strongly that it made me convinced that I wanted to pursue a second career, which led me here to Darden. Um, and he made that appointment. And the second thing he did, uh, without uh, without asking anything, is he wrote my recommendation for my doctoral program at UPenn at a time when we were both on the, on the board together, and I think I might have put him in a difficult position doing that, but I appreciated that he, he did what he thought was the right thing for me, um, and I'm very grateful for that, Dominic. Um, in his 30 years with McKinsey, he has basically served clients all over the world in just about any industry you can think of, whether it's banking whether it's consumer goods, telecom, industry. He, uh, he led McKinsey's South Korea office. Then he became the chairman of McKinsey in Asia. Then he became the chairman of McKinsey and Company worldwide. Uh, he's a very prolific author. Uh, one count has him at well over 80 articles. I thought it would be at 100 by now, but he writes very pro- uh, prolifically and interestingly on the topics of Business and society leadership, and issues facing capital markets worldwide. Dominic is also a very interesting person. He he grew up, although he's Canadian, he grew up in Uganda, and even had his house taken over by Idi Amin when he was a kid. He's a Rhodes Scholar uh, and a truly, truly global person. In fact. I don't believe I've ever met somebody that has traveled more frequent flyer miles in my life. Um, but it means that he really has an incredible view on what's going on in the world and what's on the mind of the CEO. Uh, he also, I could share a number of interesting stories that uh, happened over late night wine and partying, um, but just one I will share is um, that we do, after one very, very late night at my home in Belgium. Uh, We both discovered that our favorite song in the world was Comfortably Numb by Pink Floyd. And that led to me uh, being invited to sing in front of the entire McKinsey Partnership Group, um, which was another first at McKinsey. I I hope we didn't embarrass him too much, but we still share that passion and many others. Today he's going to speak to you on leadership in the 21st century and global forces. Uh, and time permitting, at around 2.45, we'll also take uh, some questions. If you want to get a job at McKinsey, uh, and I think maybe a few of you do, uh, please listen very carefully. Uh, McKinsey is the kind of place that values uh, global thought, thought leadership, and they're also a fantastic partner with the University of Virginia. They recruit all over this campus, not just at Darden at McIntyre and the engineering school and otherwise. So thank you very much, Dominic. Please uh, Give him a warm welcome.
1: Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Scott. It's a, it's a real honor to be here. Um, I'm glad Scott didn't tell too many stories, because there's a thing called mutual assured destruction. Uh, which, uh, so if you do want to ask any questions about him, in the question time, I'd be happy to take some of those, but but it's a, it's just a it's a great pleasure to be here. Not only uh, because this school is such an important leadership factory uh, for not only the United States but the world, and I'm embarrassed to say this is my first visit, even though I've been in this role for seven years. So it's shame on me for such a distinguished school. So I'm I'm just delighted to be here, and I've already been taking notes from Scott. He's been rattling off. All the entrepreneurship and all the activities that actually occurred not only at the school but also in Charlottesville and, and so forth. But it's also uh, again because of Scott. It's not trying to have a love-in here uh, on it, but we worked extremely closely together. Saw many really exciting things, many bad things uh, through many ups and downs. But when you, you, I think, when when anyone's leading and we're all leading, when he Scott's leading, resilience and partnership are actually some of the most fundamental factors of I think being able to be effective and uh, that is a partnership that we've had for well over two, uh, two decades and again, in I'm, I'm, McKinsey we're very, very proud of what you're, uh, what you're doing here so what what I wanted to do over the next 30 minutes, and I, in a typical McKinsey way, I've got mm-hmm. way too many slides, so I apologize, but I'm going to just, they're, they're kind of like background narrative while I talk, so I'm just going to flash through them But as Scott said, I I wanted to talk really about leadership, but I don't think you can talk about leadership unless you know the context in which you're leading. So this is the global forces are really to put uh, the the context in place to understand what leaders are going to need to do. And the basic message I would just say is a lot of what we were taught about leadership in the last 10 years I don't believe is relevant or as relevant as what we're going to need to be taught and think about as we think about the next 10 to 15 years because a lot of what we are taught which is important is what leaders do you know how you align an organization what sort of ambition you set uh, all of the KPIs the understanding the functions of how organizations work and so forth but i'm increasingly of the view that as we look ahead the most important factor or muscle in leadership will be the character of the leader who you are versus what you do, so that you can go to sleep now if you that 's the main message I, I wanted to give it 's not what you do it 's who you are, and the who you are is there 's muscles there that can be developed you 're not born with it or not and, and so i 'm going to talk a little bit uh, about that but let me uh, quickly go through the, um, uh, the 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 global forces um, there are basically four Forces that are underway, at least that we see, that are going to make this next 10 to 15 years an extraordinarily unique time in history. Uh, And again, I would view, when I say that, I'm thinking in a 300 year time frame, not the last 50 years. In 300 years, I believe that historians will look at this next 10 to 15 years as one of the most vital, dynamic, volatile, dangerous, optimistic times that, that we've seen. And it's because of these four. Forces that are underway. We've got a massive shift in economic power towards Asia and Africa that we're well on the way into. We've got technological change, which you know Larry Summers would say we're we're only in chapter one of a 100 chapter book, and, and we know already what that's doing uh, in terms of the of changing our lives. We've got an aging population. the The world will never be older uh, than it is. Uh, in the next 20 years. We're, you know, I'll go through a little bit. And that has big implications on how societies work, how productivity occurs, how growth occurs. And I think as a result of those forces, but also independent to them, there's a system-wide transformation going on. A lot of leaders think that we operate in a box that says things like, free trade is good, right? Capital markets work well, um, Democracy is good. There's just fundamental beliefs that we have. Those those boxes or those views of the world are being challenged. Uh, and they're, they, they need to be modernized. All those different elements of them. And the problem is there's not really anyone to modernize them. There's not an institution that's there to improve and fix our capital markets. Uh, there, there's not an institution out there to ensure that when free trade occurs that the people that are Dislocated, and the jobs get new jobs. Uh, these are, and you know this. This is the, to me the Trump, the Brexit, and and the and the, f- the fractioning that's going on in pretty well every society uh, in in the world. So that's a, a, a that's a different realm that we're operating in, and, I, and it's it's where geopolitics is also coming into play. When I started in McKinsey in 1986, all the way up until about 1992, the real message was that that countries or nations don't matter too much. What matters is the capital markets. And the epitome of that was when George Soros took on the Bank of England in 1992, right? As an entrepreneur, as a hedge fund manager, one person forced the, the Bank of England to devalue. It's just kind of, this is the message. Capital markets, you better listen to them. That's a very different world than what we're living in today, where geopolitics is a major force and it's an issue that a lot of leaders are struggling with and I'll come on to that uh, in a second. So that's the, those are the forces. I'm just going to flash through some of the uh, illustrations uh, of that. Biggest driver of the change in, in economic power is urbanization. We're going to see 2.4 billion new middle-class consumers in the next 15 to 20 years. That is extraordinary just in itself. That, to me, would make the 10 to 15 years coming forward be unique. We've never had anything of that scale. It's about a 1,000 times bigger than the Industrial Revolution. It's happening quickly. And again, it's primarily Asia and Africa. And if I might say, particularly for students, as you look at this and you think about, and I I noticed one of the things that I admire about Darden as well as the international makeup of the class, which is important, but I think as you... Look at your own next 10 to 15 years. Think about relationships that you're building or understanding in these parts of the world because they're going to matter big time in your your time frame. Um, and that's important. And it's very important to do, I think, in the next 10 years, not uh, in the next 20 years. One, one example of this i to show is just through pictures. This is Shenzhen, where Deng Xiaoping did his famous experiment, right? That's what the phrase he came up with. He said, I don't care if the cat's a black cat or a white cat. I don't care if it's a communist cat or a capitalist cat. If it catches the mouse, I like it. He said, that's where the cat's played. That's Shenzhen 1980. That same piece of dirt is what it looks like now. And that's happening in over 200 cities across Asia. It's just happening. And it doesn't matter about SARS or H1N1 Uh, or the great financial crisis, the urbanization continues. So this is just, it's a force of gravity is what I would uh, say as we look at it. Uh, We're going to see more of the most significant companies in the world come from this part of the world. By 2025, roughly half of the most significant companies, and we know who they are right now. You can see them. uh, It's growing like grass uh, in in the system. I mentioned cities are going to be are the big driver of, of what that is. And so thinking, when we think about, uh, you know, for our clients, they think about a China entry strategy. We don't, we don't think about it that way because we think about China as a cluster of 22 different types of cities. So we don't say go into China. Think about the city clusters because they're very different. Some clusters of cities in China have more in common with, with some of the clusters of cities in Vietnam than they do with other parts of China. So you need to think about this in a more uh, granular way. Africa, Africa, in my view, and I'm, I'm obviously biased because I did, I did grow up in, in Uganda, but I think it's a place that has been deeply underappreciated uh, and it's on the move. Uh, we, we're just going to be releasing a report called Lions on the Move uh, 2.0. And while Africa is has declined in growth in the last five years, it's still the second fastest growing region in the world, and there are 11 major economies in there that have actually increased their growth rates over the last five years. There's lots of opportunity. It, also, you just look at the size of it, and this is at a very basic level, because we're all brought up with a Mercator presentation of the world. Greenland actually looks bigger than Africa. But when you actually, you know, we can fit China, Western Europe, India, Argentina, and the US with lots of space. It just gives you the sense of what's happening, and it's, it's moving. Uh, Africa looks to me like Asia looked to me in 1991. There wasn't much trade. One of my Japanese mentors, in fact, told me that Asia is a Western invention. This is in 1991. You, you think there's an Asia, that's a time zone. We actually don't have a lot in common. That's very different today when you look at the trade routes, and I think we're going to see that uh, in Africa. Huge need for infrastructure. If you think about the, the many, many businesses that need to be built, uh, uh, and what governments need to do. A huge agenda. Infrastructure is one of the biggest. We're going to see it in food. Ag food, which is, a, again, I think an underappreciated industry, I think will be one of the most exciting industries in the future. It's a high-tech industry. One picture I took, this is just a picture from a grocery store in Melbourne, uh, which I uh, took earlier this year. Basically, if you think about milk, dairy, and you think about baby infant formula in China, because of safety issues, people are very worried about where they buy it. And so Australia is a place where if you go to a duty-free store, you won't just see whiskey and alcohol. You'll see infant baby formula that's there because there are so many Chinese families that fly, literally, from Shanghai to Melbourne to buy milk powder and then bring it up. And you can see on the shelf, they, there's actually a limit. It's a, it's a ration of what they can do, and that's just a, a group of the customers uh, that are coming in. So there's, don't underestimate the, the demand that those 2.4 billion people have for commodities and ag food and, and products like that. I think it's going to be it's a huge opportunity for North American companies, for European companies, and also. African companies. We're going to see it in cars, we're going to see it in in the airplane manufacturing business, but we're also going to see it as a this is where the climate change implications are very significant and I think what Xi Jinping was saying in terms of making commitments is a very significant issue because again the 2.4 billion people want to, middle class, want to live and eat like we all do and from work we've done if we if, if that 2.4 billion do it the way we've done it, we're going to have some severe resource constraints. Water we think will be the, the new oil as we look ahead. So that's just one of the forces that's going on. That in itself to me would say this 15 to 20 years are going to be a very dynamic period. The second one which I think now is even more important I say this with some trepidation because Scott is an area where he spent a lot of his time so he'll probably laugh at some of my comments <laughs> here. But there's really three forces that are driving this technological revolution, again, independent from anything to do with what the economic environment uh, is doing. It's the computing power, it's the connectedness of us and devices, and it's data. Those are the three drivers as, as we look at it. One way I try to look at it in my simple mind is the, the average higher washing machine, you know, the Chinese washing machine, that, that, that machine has more computing power in it than NASA had in 1969 in its entirety in terms of power to send someone to the moon. Okay, that's the kind of scale we're, we're, we're talking about. And this is going to continue. This is the Singularity University folks. Basically, a computer today can mimic an insect brain, which doesn't sound that sophisticated, but insects are quite complex creatures. We're heading to a mouse brain Probably a human brain sometime in the mid-2020s. And then the singularity point is when when do you do all human brains, right? And what are the implications? And this isn't science fiction. This, this is why, you know, there's, we're, we're public knowledge. We're doing work with the Pope because the Pope has had to establish a technology committee because, as he says himself, there was nothing in the Bible written about artificial intelligence. Uh, so he has a group of people trying to advise him on what does this mean? How do we interpret this? How do we think about ethics uh, and, and how that moves? So it's a, everyone's being affected by this, every single institution. Um, the connectedness of devices now is far more than humans and that creates a lot of opportunity. And it's not just the, the sort of the power of computers and the connectedness, it's also the innovations going on in many other different areas from you know, uh, energy storage, what batteries uh, can actually do, material science, graphene, uh, what the, which has been developed in uh, Manchester, uh, blockchain, there's just there's a whole range. And I'm sure in five years you'll chuckle at this chart and say, I can't believe these guys didn't think about X, Y, Z, and A. It's, just, it's, it's hard to keep up with these, and they're all, they're all transformative. It's obviously affected all of us at a very human level or on the consumer side, but it's also affected us on the business side. Now, just two seconds on this chart. This is, you know, GE made a very major pivot from being basically an advanced manufacturing company, a well-known advanced manufacturing company, to saying they want to be a software company. And it it wasn't a gimmick. The reason they did that, this is from Jeff Emelt, was if you take a locomotive, which is one of the many products they produce, they spend a lot of money focusing on, you know, the metal that's used in the wheels, the power input-output ratio, the manufacturing, the, the power, the resiliency of that vehicle. And the way you measure the, the sort of the asset uh, value of that vehicle is its average speed. That's, that's the value to a company, it's like a railroad company. And this may be a weird sort of piece of information, but the average speed of a locomotive in the United States is about 22 miles an hour. Right, every hour per day if you can increase that by one mile an hour on average for someone like Burlington Northern that's a $250 million profit opportunity so what Jeff Emelt said is I don't want an Uber coming in here working off our machines and figuring out the analytics of how that uh, locomotive could move through it we need to own the analytics and the software and the sensors that go on that side and that's why you see the the Internet of Things becoming such a huge transformation uh, in in industry. We know about cars. The only thing I'd say with this one, this is again how we're going to see a lot of competition coming from other sectors, right? We used to, at least I was taught in McKinsey, when you think about competitive strategy, you think about the companies that are in your sector, right? If I'm a banker, I'm not going to spend a lot of time thinking about the automotive industry, well, today, you better think about what's going on in other industries. One example I'll give you here is, if you think about uh, cardiac surgeons, right? which is a, it's a very important you know, profession, it's actually a, it's a big business, if you're one of the best cardiac surgeons in New York, uh, you probably don't think too much about the automated vehicle, but you should, because unfortunately, this isn't a good topic to talk about after lunch, but Most of the hearts that come for the heart transplants are supplied by car accident victims, right? So you're going to see a sudden change in your supply chain, if I might use that phrase, if you're a a cardiac vision. So these are things that you, you, you need to think about. It's changing views about, again, I was taught that if you are going to build a business, you have to own some assets. Well, some people have showed us you actually don't have to own assets, uh, how you think about distribution, whether you own it or not, or you build a company based on distribution rather than products. There's a lot of orthodoxies that are being challenged in how businesses and companies and organizations are, are set up. And there are some very big implications for jobs. If you Think about the big three uh, uh, employers back in the in the early 1990s. It was the automotive companies, right? The only thing I'd say here is you look at their... Just look at their revenues, $250 billion for the big three, and then you look at the revenues of Google, Facebook, and Apple, and we probably need to update it, but you see about a tenth of the jobs being created. And this is, again, something that we're going to have to grapple with because I don't think our educational institutions are keeping up with the pace of the change uh, that, that, as, as we go through it. We're seeing a lot more automation uh, that's happening of work, um, we're doing some work right now in, in Canada. It's pro bono with the Prime Minister to try and increase the growth rate by 200 basis points in Canada. One of the things we're looking at is for the 18.1 million jobs, we think that half of them have a high risk of being automated uh, in, the, in the next 10 years. And again, that's a, that will have a huge... If we don't think again about job relocation, training, that's why I think universities are not going to be places that we go to twice or once in our lifetime, but maybe six or seven times uh, through it. So I hope you like the places where you're living here, because you're probably going to be coming back uh, many times. That's why I'm here. I'm hoping I can get a room at some point in the system. <laughs> Obviously, the, the technology puts there's significant threats, and I, I love this one from Eric Holder. Basically, it says there are only two types of companies, those that have been hacked and those that don't know they've been hacked. Um, and that's a, a challenge we've, we've all gotta, uh, all got to face as we go through it. So that technology is a massive force. I think we're in the early stages of it. It's already disrupting us. Aging population, just I'm going to show one page here. I, I think it's pretty obvious what the implications are because demographics are very, very, very difficult to try and jolt or change. You, you, you look at them and you, and you see them. And this has an, a significant implication for productivity growth because uh, the biggest driver of U.S. productivity growth over the last 50 years has not actually been technology. It's been women entering the workforce uh, in the late 60s and 1970s. That was the single biggest push. What we're going to see in many of the OECD countries is people coming out of the workforce because of the p- current pension age. So we're going to have to work longer. It's just not going to work. We're going to have to work longer. Um, And we're also going to... I think immigration is going to become a very important thing to do. So much uh, against the sort of current political debate here, I think we are going to want to attract more people to be in the countries. That's why in the Canadian work what we're doing right now is saying we should triple the immigration rate from what it is today and people are actually supportive uh, of it. We're going to see more of that. Older people also cost more money. And as I get older, I think it's good to have more older people around, but but we're pretty expensive uh, to keep moving. You know, I think it's something like 75% of the costs of a human from a medical care point of view occur in the last three years of someone's life. So we're going we're to have to have very profound changes to how health care is done or, or governments are just not going to be able to work. And the system-wide transformation, I'm, I mentioned at the beginning, there's a lot of assumptions we have about how the world's moving that are changing. Inequality, polarization, increasing displacement, uh, what trade is doing uh, for people, geopolitical. And again, I say this, I'm actually an optimist. I don't want to make people feel worried, or but there's, there's a hell of a lot of change going on in here which is going to have to get uh, settled out. I think some of these facts, like this is, this is from Oxfam, the, the wealthiest 62 individuals on the planet uh, are are equivalent to the bottom half. You know, these are, with technology people realize this and start to say why? Is this right? And And by the way, as a good capitalist, I don't believe that you should have equality. I think inequality is part of a system, but if you don't have equality of opportunity, you have a very bad outcome. And that's what we're seeing more of. That's what worries me. I think we are not seeing the same level of opportunity uh, that we had uh, in the last 10 years. And our our data actually shows it. This is data we just recently looked at, just at income levels. We're roughly, uh, you know, you've got 560 million people whose incomes have either stayed the same or gone down in 25 of the most industrialized countries in the world over the last 10 years. And So Brexit is not because of ignorant people Not understanding how the system works. It's people who have not benefited they've not participated in the change of of what's going on. And we're again seeing that here. We're seeing it in Mexico. There's not a single country that's not being affected by this. And unfortunately we're polarizing more uh, over time. I think a lot of this is actually driven by the media. Uh, It used to be if you wanted to get a television show uh, on in the early 1990s, you had to think about an audience of six million people, which by definition meant you had to be more in the middle. You couldn't have a crazy radical side of things. But with the Internet today, I can do a very profitable show for for 10,000 people. So you're seeing a a sort of a polarization of it. So we're watching our own news. I'm I'm not watching your news, and you're not watching my news. I'm watching watching our own. Uh, And so there's less social capital. We're seeing, again, already uh, significant job dislocation uh, that's occurring. Geopolitics is now, in most countries for CEOs, the number one issue that, that people uh, actually worry about uh, as they see it. Refugees are now at an all-time high. When I did this chart last year, we could always say it's the highest level since World War II. When there's, we've now broken through the World War II side. I don't see this number going down anytime soon. Uh, with the with the conflicts and it's, it's one of the ways we're globalizing, unfortunate in, in, in a sad way, uh, because of the the violence. Jeff Melt gave a what I think is a very pr- uh, profound speech at a commencement exercise in New York in May. He basically GE, which to, in many ways is the epitome of the globalizer, the free market multinational capitalistic company, basically said, we're going local. We're we're going. Local, because the currency of the realm are jobs. We can't just ship those locomotives from the U.S. to other places because countries are saying, "How many jobs are you creating for us?" You need to localize where you're moving. That's a very big shift that we're all all uh, going to have to deal with. Just as one of the implications, there's some very interesting books I think out there. Ian Bremner's is, Bremner's is one of my favorite about the G0 world, uh, as the you know, the U.S. played a Extraordinarily important role since World War II, uh, I think in stabilizing and play, you know with capital with values and so forth that the, the u s is pulling back china 's not ready uh, to play a role, and so you 've got a, a g zero world as what he would call it um, and we 're having challenges to states as we 're seeing in in the Middle East. What this means when you put it all together is also the the life cycle of organizations is shrinking. So, if you were in the S and P five hundred in nineteen thirty five, which was not a great year to be on the S and P five hundred, your average lifespan was ninety years. Uh, today, it's about fifteen years. Right? And I I look at this chart a lot because this year is McKinsey's ninetieth anniversary, and I and I I, I worry because we have. No God given right to be here. There's unfortunately for me, no, there's no law that says you have to work with McKinsey or you. We, and, and there are many, many superb competitors, disruptors, often again coming from outside our traditional area that we're going to have to uh, deal with. Is this speed okay? Am I, okay. Um, I, I do think there's some encouraging signs. This is just one I just say with the space state, the International Space Station, it, it's remarkable to me that in times when you have, you know, you know, Russia in the Crimea and in the Ukraine, you have conflict in the Middle East, you've actually got uh, close to 45 different nations that continue to work together to make that space station happen. Different languages, different measures, and it works uh, in, 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 what, in what they're doing the number of people that visit. And so there are many things where we can actually cooperate. There's a new system actually in the Middle East called SESAME, which actually has the Israelis, the Iranians, the Saudis, uh, and a number of other countries working together uh, on uh, basically an accelerator uh, to to understand how, how molecules and atoms work when you put them under high pressure and so forth. So on the science side, we're actually seeing... Cooperation. We're seeing it actually in areas like cancer uh, as well across it. So there are glimpses of where people <clears throat> seem to be able to work together, uh, but there's not, not a lot of them. So the last part, I'm just going to finish off in 10 minutes here, is, okay, so what does all that mean for leadership, given that world which is moving much faster, uh, has so many changes going on at the same time? This is what I mentioned. I think we have to think... Uh, As much, or even more about who we all are as leaders, who you all are as leaders uh, versus what leaders do. And I just want to quickly go through a few of the elements that I think are going to be important. One of the things that Scott said, in traveling around what I do, I have a rule of, I have to see two CEOs or government leaders a day. It's just a rule because when I joined McKinsey, I didn't want to do internal work. I wanted to try and stay linked and I'm not, reliable or allowed to do client work uh, right now. So that's my release, if you will. Is to go. And I always ask these leaders two sets of questions. One, what do they wish they'd, they, they had, that they know now they've learned at the beginning of their time as a leader? right? What, if there are three things you wish you knew, what would those be uh, in terms of driving? Then I ask them, what are the three... Most exciting or worrying issues that you're facing, right? Where it is. And so it's more from the first question where I've just started to pull this. So I think I've seen now uh, about 1,700 different leaders, right, in, over time. And just I keep a little blue book of all just the, of the comments uh, that are made. So the first category, which I think will always be important in what people do, is how you set an ambition and the Role model for me is actually South Korea. This is a picture from 1970. Uh, What you have is basically uh, in the middle is President Park. Then you have a business person called T.J. Park and a worker. And they're in what's called the POSCO pit, right? uh, Korea at that time had a GDP per capita less than the Philippines, right, at the time, right? It was a very, very poor country, no natural resources. The World Bank had told uh, South Korea... You should never build a steel mill. You have no energy. You have no resources. You have no economy. What the hell are you doing? And I can tell you, if McKinsey was there in 1970, we would have said it 10x. Don't do it. These guys did it. And POSCO today remains the most productive, profitable steel company in the world. These are the guys that built it in that dirt pit. And it's... Ambition. Uh, you know, ambition can be crazy. I you have, There's a fine line between bold and crazy uh, in all of these things as we go through it. So, but what I would say is there's been a... What I always tease my Canadian counterparts who doing the work, I said, imagine, let's just do the thought experiment, if South Korea all of a sudden owned Canada, what do you think they'd do? It, and it's, And I actually got a bunch of South Koreans together to say, let's pretend you do, what would you do? And it's really interesting uh, to see... <laughs> where it is and it's a to me it's around it's ambition what's the and in a world that's changing quickly where there's a lot where where a lot of it's going to be around talent and people that that's going to matter so much more with what we have with technology what's your ambition i I don't ambition again can have negative connotations i don't this doesn't mean greed (laughs) this is this is about where do you want to take the organization uh, to be able to be relevant, to be able to be significant and resilient over time, you need to think about uh, think about that. Another, I, I find a lot. There's a lot of I, I find a lot more actually inspiring stories or inspirational stories from a lot of the Asian leaders. This is uh, the CEO of Hire. If you don't know about Hire, it's well worth reading how they've been transforming their organization. But this is one of the the boldest leaders, challenging themselves. They've gone from an eighty thousand person pyramid organization to basically a flat organization with 200 business units, right? Again, things that McKinsey would have told them never to do. You're going to create chaos. This is crazy. You can't move that many people. Well, they did it, and the performance uh, that they've achieved and the energy that they've created with the talent uh, has been uh, been remarkable. Uh, This notion of anticipating the second bounce of the ball, often when we think about an action that's going to occur, we say, well, therefore, this is the next step, what you should do. Actually, the most important thing, and this came from Alex Gorsky, who told me this, he said, the thing I wish I'd learned at the beginning was that it's most important to think about the second bounce of the ball, not the first. The first is kind of obvious. It's the second and third that you don't know where things are going. And that's where the opportunities and the risks uh, are often uh, going to be. Uh, the ability to prioritize and compartmentalize. This I learned from Mary Barra, but I also learned from the uh, from a, a large insurance company, Allianz, in um, in Europe. In, and basically, the view was, I was meeting the CEO of Allianz, who basically said to me, "If I had seen you in my first week in my job, I would have kicked you out of my office." I said, "That okay? I get the feedback." I, and he said, "No, it's not about you." It's because I, in my first week as becoming CEO, uh, I found out from our legal department that we were being sued for $10 billion. And he said, I couldn't, I was paralyzed. Everything I looked at was $10 billion. The microphone, Scott, it's t- $10 billion. And he goes, I couldn't concentrate. That's why I would have kicked you out. And he goes, now I'm talking to you. I have six of those things that I'm dealing with. They're like plates spinning behind my head, but I'm focused on you. It's, it's compartmentalizing what you need to do while crazy stuff is going on. And that's not, it's a very difficult skill to learn, right, and and how you do it. We talked about that. One of the places I think that teaches this very well is West Point, right, in the the plebe class where one of the exercises I saw was you get uh, some of the new cadet class to come in. You have to solve an engineering problem while you're crawling on the ground with barbed wire over your head and machine gun fire going over top. So you have to compartmentalize. You can't focus on one or the other. You have to do both. That's probably not a program to put in place here at, at uh, DART. But you, But I think the idea of, again of thinking about how you do that, how you can focus, uh, is is very uh, important. Telescope and Microsoft. Randall Stevenson, he's, he's a hero of mine. This, he's the single largest infrastructure investor in the United States, right, and, and where he is. In his his sense, he said, I wish if I could do it over again, that I was able to keep a microscope in one eye and a telescope in the other and not get a headache, and obviously he hadn 't done that, but you get the sense of what that means he said because the world 's moving so quickly i got to keep my eye on what 's happening here, but at the same time there 's these deeper longer term trends, and if all I do is focus down here i 'm going to wake up and we 'll be an irrelevant organization and how do you balance that that 's why I think things like a three-year plan and a one-year plan. I'm not so sure those are that valuable anymore. We're, we are thinking now, and we see it with our organizations, maybe it's a three-month plan and a 20-year plan. You see in technology companies, it's an eight-week plan, right? An eight-week plan and a 10-year plan. So just thinking how you move out resources around your organization with that world that we're in now is going to have to be done differently. Managing your energy, not your time. Carlos Ghosn you know has been, been one of the longest standing CEOs I think dealing with some of the most complex issues he's got the French government that from time to time wants to own more wants to interfere more with what's going on he, he's, he's got a joint venture between a Japanese and a French company highly unionized um, and what he says is the basic what I focus on now is it's how I manage my energy. It's very difficult to manage my time. It's when, when are the times during the day when I'm ready to make decisions. He thinks about 90-minute sprints. I can't do anything for more than 90 minutes or I just bore myself. I, I just can't concentrate anymore. So 90 minutes. And there's lots of sports medicine that's actually going into CEOs. The fastest growing CEO advisory space today, I wish I could say it was McKinsey, is actually sports medicine. At helping athletes recover is actually one of the most important parts of having a very successful athlete. So how do leaders recover uh, when you're dealing with days like this? Um, Andrew Liveris, uh, same thing, ubiquitous. Uh, one of the best people developers, this is, is K.V. Kamath from ICICI, who, ba- who single-handedly, uh, all of the women CEOs basically in India, he mentored them. He's just phenomenal at at mentoring people, but also women in particular. Um, And his notion was, you know, if I could do my time over again as a CEO, I would have spent even more time on people. I would have have removed people faster, I would have moved people up faster, and I would have spent more time with people, just as we uh, go go through it. Um, Irene Rosenfeld as well. Um, Ed Breen at, uh, at, at DuPont. I think, again... We're finding that the role of the HR officer, the CHRO, is a much, much more strategic role than most companies think about. We think there should be more CEOs coming from the HR position uh, than there are today given the importance of, of where, this, uh, where this is. Probably one of the most purpose-driven leaders that I've seen out there is Paul Pullman who came in. He, he would have what I, I call the courage of a dead man Right. He, and I'll come to resilience in a minute. He's someone who, you know, he was at Procter & Gamble, right to the top of the chain, didn't become the CEO, was hired then by Nestle, came right up to the top of the chain, wasn't made CEO, and then Unilever asked him to become the CEO. And what he's done in terms of what, what of, of rethinking what Unilever is all about, which is around the purpose of the company, what's the role of this organization on the planet. He's a big believer in sustainability and climate change. He came out and said a couple of things in his first week on the job. One, he said, we're going to double the profits and half our carbon footprint. Right? People were shocked. He said, second thing is, no more quarterly earnings guidance because we're long term. And if you don't like that, investors, get out. Literally said that. And then I said, well, how did that go? And he goes, well, one thing I learned is it's easier to lose investors than to gain them. So that was <laughs> easier. But he said, frankly, in my first three months of my job, there is no way that I could be fired, right? Uh, and so this is the time in your early part as a leader to set the mark and the bar. And I think he's doing that for, for, for a lot of, uh, lot of leaders as we, as we go ahead. Uh, Marilyn Houston's one of the, my favorite CEOs. I'd follow her anywhere around the world. I think what she's doing at Lockheed Martin, which is going through so many changes on the technology front, you just can't even imagine. And I think some of our most interesting technology is in the defense industry that we can't see, but it's phenomenal. And so she has this a perspective, in my view, of a world that's changing very quickly, dealing with the geo Politics and also being a a very, very people-driven person. So I just, someone I think that we should study uh, more of. Selflessness. You know, one of the things that I think is most important in leadership is it's not about you. And unfortunately, many leaders, as they spend more time in their leadership role, get more into themselves. It's more about them. Um, And as you're in the role for longer, you actually have less people telling you you know, what you're not doing right, and so forth. Um, and I think I think the, the most effective leaders are those that are very selfless, that are, that are not. And one of the ways I learned about this was actually in the U.S. military, again, And picking a five-star general. The CEO of Clorox went to see the group that's involved in that to learn about CEO succession. He was moving out. He, he booked half a day, thought it was going to be a long session, said the meeting lasted 15 minutes. Because what he basically learned was, he said, it's very simple. We just look for two things, selflessness and judgment. All the rest, I mean, the track record's there, but it's selflessness and, and judgment. And I don't think we spend a lot of time thinking uh, about, about what that is. Lubna Alian I don't know people even know about her. She's a Saudi woman. It's a, her their their family. Manages somewhere, I don't know, it's a very private company, somewhere in the order of 35 to 40 billion dollars, right? Um, is a, a woman that you never see she, in a meeting that you have. She's not the loudest person. She's just quiet, listens, effective uh, in what she does. And to me is a role model of a, a selfless and extremely effective leader because I think the, the, uh, the, the two go together. And I think, again, there's the, the issue of judgment as I come through it and decisiveness. I think you know, President Obama has talked about this, that unfortunately the toughest decisions come up to where he is because they haven't obviously been resolved. And often those decisions are right versus right decisions, right? This is where many CEOs I've talked to say, if I could do it over again, I actually would have redone part of my education. I would have taken more philosophy, you may not know this, one of the most popular MOOCs for CEOs is basic philosophy. And you'd say, well, why, why is that? And this is the next slide. Not, there's not a CEO here on this picture, but <laughs> it's, a, it, it, it's a, um, basically a, a picture trying to represent Fonterra, which is the largest dairy company in the world. And I remember meeting the CEO and I said, what did you learn? And he said, the, har- the hardest thing. Uh, that I've had to learn is how to deal with right versus right decisions. I said, well, I'm not a philosopher. Tell me, what does that mean? He said, okay, I get a decision like this once a week. Let me tell you what last week's was. One of my researchers, research scientists, came to me and said, we can increase the production of one of our average dairy cows by 25% if we abort the fetus three weeks before the calf should be born. Okay, So one lens could be, it's an animal. I don't, I'm, we're making milk. You know, you've know, got, got to produce milk. We're going to do it. You could have that view. So the second view is you could say, I could have that view, but worry about what my consumers might think because they may not think that way and say, well, that, that seems a little bit unethical. Or you may just not believe that that's the right thing to do in treating an animal. Because there's no there's no guidebook for that type. I can't, I don't, I can't go to a business school that's going to tell me how to make that trade-off. It's... A, it's It's judgment, but you have to make a call. And he said, I get one of those types of things a week uh, as we we go through it. So again, I think thinking of that uh, is important. The notion of being destructive and challenging your orthodoxies, I think, is fundamental. Klaus Kleinfeld is someone, I think, who's done that very well at Alcoa, willing to completely break up the company for the company to be more successful. Ed Breen uh, also did that um, at at uh, at Tyco. and then resilience is the last one I want to talk about. Do, you know, we all we all understand what Jack Ma has done. It's very interesting when you look at his his background. You know, KFC came to China. Twenty four people went for the job. Twenty three people accepted. I was the guy who wasn't. Right? Who's there? Incredible uh, resilience uh, in in what he did. And I think this is one of the most important muscles that we need to have. And some of the work that. Scott did in McKinsey when we were looking at leadership development, one of the areas we looked at was why are some people more fulfilled than others? And we looked at everything over a 30-year time frame. We looked at what schools they went to, what nationalities they had, what type of projects they did, were they which sectors were they in, what, how many mentors did they have. You know what the one Single differentiating feature between those who felt more fulfilled, and this included people ten years after their time in in McKinsey, the one differentiating feature was the more fulfilled people had more failure than the less fulfilled. Which kind of I said that must be you got it backwards. It might, you, you, it, you, something's wrong. And I said no, that's what it is. And it's it's this notion of taking risk, but getting yourself back up again to to move forward. And I think that is extremely important when when you see leaders. And I've seen leaders blow up who've had wondrous golden boy or golden girl careers and then they hit an issue which may not be fair, it may not be because of what they did, but they can't handle it. And and then it blows up. One CEO, I remember uh, from a company that's generated a lot of leaders, and I asked, what was your learning after the financial crisis, said, I learned about character and leadership. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, two of my top 10 leaders cracked like glass when the temperature went up to 1,400 degrees. They literally, they were paralyzed. And these are people that had built businesses, turned around businesses, lived in different countries, but they, and I said, what do you do about it? And he goes, well, I can't cook them up. I can't take my leaders and stress them out to the hilt and see where it is. So I said, what do you do? He goes, I asked them to stay overnight at my house. I said, what do you do? Why do you do that? He said, because I want to get the, Sense of the the character, the informal side, more and where they are and what's happening. So I said, your new model is a sleepover. Is that your how <laughs> to your development path? But this resilience is key. And the last one I just show is I, I. You look at Abraham Lincoln, right? And just look, just look at that list of failures or in issues that he he, he had to deal with as as he uh, as he went through it. So again, this is not a cry to go out and fail like a madman uh, on it but I'm just saying but it is a cry to take risk and try uh, different things uh, as we go through it so anyhow I'm going to shut up I've talked for too long I, I hope that's just given you a picture of a, a world that is like we've never seen it before I think an exciting uh, time it's going to take a lot of leadership I'm jealous of you because you you are all going to lead I think in one of the most exciting times that are there But I think we're going to have to focus more on the who leaders are uh, as much as what leaders do. Thank you very much. Um, do you see yourself having to take on more government clients in order to really affect the sort of change or um, grapple with issues that are going to be, you know, at the forefront in the next 20 years? Yeah, it's a great... I think that we have to act now. I think it's not... You're, if we don't change fundamentally in some of the things that we're doing now, I think we're going to... We could end up in a very bad place. And so I think uh, one of the things we... I think business leaders are going to have to be much more involved in their, the society in which they operate. Right? You, you, you have to be thinking about the jobs that you're creating or not or dislocating, what you're doing to kind of build the community or not. And there are companies that are doing this very well. And, there, and if you don't, you're going to be villainized. I, I think that's going to be... And you won't have the license to operate. Um, so I think business leaders are going to have... They have to do it now, not five years from now. or ten, They have to get involved. And I'm seeing it. Coca-Cola is actually doing a lot uh, on the societal front, if I look at what they're doing in Mexico, they're doing a lot on resources. I'm not. I'm just picking them as a as, as one example. There are a number of of others, but we're going to have to have more of that happening now. I think in government, this is on the political side. It, I don't know what to. I'm not. A, I just don't know what to do there. We need. We're good, other than say we want. We need more leadership, which is not a a very helpful thing to say. But what I do think we're we're, we're going to have to have is to also have. We're going to have to have an an Invention and innovation in policy. So the last, in my view, one of the last big policy inventions that was done in the, let's say, 100 years was pensions, right? Bismarck came up with pensions in 1881. We don't have... There's been healthcare care reforms of sorts in different parts of the world, but I think one of the biggest reforms we're going to need now is job dislocation, and we need it fast. You know, people talk about Pittsburgh being an amazing story because, you know, it was a steel town. It, it, you know, the steel workers lost their jobs. Now it's become a health center. Well, the problem is those steel workers are not the health workers. They're still unemployed. And we're going to have to have a, a innovation in policy now to deal with that or we're not going to uh, be able to move it. So I think there's a huge agenda to deal with now. And I think it's important for business to get involved in that. And I think also for for people that are in the civil service, if you will, to also be innovative and creative, because it, it's just not going to work otherwise. Um, and, and you know, I think I think my heroes there is I look Angela Merkel is one of my she's a bold leader, has a view of what she's uh, uh, trying to do and be able to drive it. I think the Canadian Prime Minister is of that ilk too, trying trying to make it work. But there's, there are not a lot of leaders to look to who are long term. In, in what they do in dealing with fundamental issues so
0: Thank you so much you to coming to UVA my name is Sean undergraduate study politics and commerce I have a question for you as what worries you the most as a leader for McKinsey and the global business community
1: uh, I have quite a lot of worries I, I have I, I think you know one and one I actually worry quite a lot about is cyber security because we're a we we do a lot of confidential work for about 2,500 institutions around the world. Some of them are governments, you know, so they're companies that are working in technology. And I worry about that Eric Holder uh, comment about being hacked, right? And that that affects our trust. So that that's one, at one level, I worry there. Um, I I also worry about, and this probably is not a very good comment to make when I'm try, I'd, I'd be keen on trying to recruit as many of you as I possibly can to McKinsey. But one of the things we I worry about is, you know, McKinsey. We work with the CEOs, leaders of organizations in building businesses globally, restructuring. You know, we're at the tip of the spear of all this disruption, and so we're we can be, we are elites in a co- like we're the group. It's quiet group doing this stuff. We're benefiting from globalization, and and I worry I, I worry about. Who are these people from McKinsey, and who gave them the right to do this we 're private we 're not regulated i 'm just and, and i I think we have to be very thoughtful about what what it is we 're doing in the countries that we 're operating in what you know what 's the role we 're playing in terms of are we building businesses that will create jobs like are the mix of our work? I never used to have to think about that, but i I do because i you look at what 's happened to Apple just on the tax issue you know a company that 's Extraordinarily popular and revered because of their innovation, but I can tell you in Europe, uh, from a, you know you, on the tax side, it's kind of like what the hell is going on here? What? How come they're not doing that, if you will? And it, those things can turn very quickly. So it's the short-term cyber stuff I worry about, and then it's the what's our role and how are we perceived um, by by. The, the the steel workers in Pittsburgh um, or people who've been dislocated. Um, in it. You talked a lot about the changing evolution in time periods and how short-term and long-term are fluid definitions. But I'd be curious, as aspiring leaders... What is your perspective on the amount of energy and attention from leadership that should be focused on the tactical and the short-term decision-making on a quarterly basis versus some of those longer trends and and kind of emerging vision of the organization? And how do you divide and how do successful leaders divide their energy towards those pursuits? Well, it's a great question. I mean, I I think that uh, there's too much microscope, not enough telescope, going on or too, too much focusing on the three months or the, or the quarterly. And I would especially say that with, if I could, Anglo-Saxon leaders. It's very, I don't want to stereotype Asia versus, but one of the reasons I got interested in this whole area is when I moved from Shanghai to London and I do the two CEO you know, uh, or leader visits a day, I was shocked at how short-term leaders were. And these are people, they're, they're good leaders, but they are forced by the market, by uh, activist investors and others that they they, they will, will deal with that. We've, we've got statistics on it, too, that 55% of CFOs in publicly listed companies will not make a net present value positive investment if it means missing their quarterly earnings by one cent, right? And that, we don't have enough investment going on. I'm not, And that's that worry that's short, that's not capitalism, that's, that's short-termism, and, and you can see it, that, that moving through the system. Whereas if I look at someone like Samsung, right, or I look at Hire, or some of these, these organizations there that are, and I'll never forget doing work, um, this was in Korea, and we were doing it actually with the president of Korea, and he said, we're, we're going to do a 60-year strategy, and I couldn't understand the translation, I said, must be six, right, not... 60. And he, he understood English as right? President Lee. And he said to me, he goes, I said 60. I went, okay, I got the message. And he, and he said, no, but for you, white boy, he literally called me that. He goes, you white boy, he goes, we normally think 100 years, but I don't think you can handle it. So 60. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, never, I've never forgotten it. Uh, so that, I think the time, you know, and I, I do think there are these, that's, that's why I think again, you know, you will, you will see, and for, for many multinationals right now, the future leaders, in my view, are being groomed in Africa. They're spending time in Africa now. It's not the most relevant market right now, but it will be. Uh, and, so you're see- and you saw that happening in Asia. So I, I think it's very important, especially on the people dimension, wh- who you're recruiting, how you're developing people, where you're entering markets, where you're doing R&D, We got to have more long. We got to have more long view. Uh, We've got, I think, too much focused on the short now. One more. Okay. Uh,
0: Last question. Sorry.
1: Maybe two. Yeah. Waiting for. Um, You mentioned very early on in your talk uh, increasing societal division, and you mentioned Trumpism and Brexit Brexit specifically. Do you talk a little bit more about that and how business leaders should be thinking about and grappling that in terms of threats or possibly opportunities? Well, I think um, my own personal view is I think business leaders have to be involved. It's like the the question that was asked about these long-term issues. I I think we have to speak up and and get and, and talk to people in our organizations at the very minimum. A lot of people in Brexit wouldn't do that. Do you know what I mean? There was not a there wasn't a that's not our role. It's politics, so we shouldn't do it. But I I actually think we should, as business leaders, should go even further than that. I think they should get much more involved in their community. What what are the issues? Minneapolis is actually a role model for me. There's a thing called the Itasca Forum, I think it is, where you've got a group of business leaders. You've got, is anyone here from Minnesota, by the way? You've got a a group of, correct me if I'm wrong on it, but, but a group of business leaders with the governor and with the mayor that are actually wor- working on issues like education. How do we improve our education system here? How do we make it easier for immigrants to be able to get jobs? Because there's a lot that actually came into that. They work on cross-sector issues to, to move things forward. And I think we've, you've got to do that. Okay. Thank you yes. very much.